If you would, open up in your copy of God's Word to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. Hopefully you're wearing out a path to 1 Thessalonians in your Bible. Hopefully those pages are getting a little crinkled around the edges there. Uh, I, know, I know mine are. And, uh, and so you're, you're, you're able to get there pretty quickly now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. The title of our message today is Genuine Disciple Making, Missional Praying. Genuine Disciple Making, Missional Praying. Missional Praying. I'll give you just a moment to find that, and then we will begin with reading from God's Word. Beginning there in verse 11, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, the Word of God says this, Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father." At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is the word of the Lord. If I told you that we were going to have a, have a, a prayer meeting, a prayer time, and, and I, wanted, I wanted you to have a chance to share some prayer requests, and I said, I'm, everybody can share three requests. I want everybody to share three requests. What would those prayer requests be? Now, don't say them out loud right now, but just think about them in your mind. Maybe if you want to jot them down, if you're taking notes, you want to jot those prayer requests down, you could do that. I'll give you just a moment. What, what would those three requests be? What would your three prayer requests? I don't mean something I want to thank the Lord for, but something I, I, I want to ask him for, a, a request. What would your three be? All right, maybe you've got three. Here's what I want you to do now. I want you to... I want you to categorize those three. I want you to place them in one of two categories. One category is called physical needs, and one category is called spiritual needs. Okay? And so even if, you're, if you've jotted them down, I saw some folks writing them down. If you want to put a little P next to the physical needs, if it falls in that category, an S next to the spiritual needs. Let me give you a, 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 a kind of example of each of those categories. Uh, physical needs category would include things like uh, healing from a physical sickness. Or maybe a prayer for a new job or help getting out of a a difficult financial uh, situation or maybe help passing a a test of some sort or maybe a a smooth transition into college um, or or the start of a school year. Uh, Maybe it's a prayer for a good report from the doctor. Those would be things that would fall in that physical category, uh, physical needs. Now, spiritual needs would include things like softening someone's heart to hear and respond in faith to the gospel. Or maybe asking God for help resisting a a certain temptation. Or boldness to speak the gospel to someone who is lost. Or maybe a prayer for wisdom to know, how how do I honor God in this particular situation? Or maybe it's strength to forgive someone who has wronged you. Or or maybe it's uh, increased love for others or strengthened faith during a trial. Those would be things that would fall into the spiritual needs. Okay. Um, Now, I want you to think. Of those three requests, if you came up with three requests, how many of them fell into the physical needs category and how many of them fell into the spiritual needs category? Just think for a moment. Don't say it out loud. Just think. Now, if I had to guess, and this is just a guess, um, if I had to guess, the majority of our requests, if we really took the time and everybody went around and said three prayer requests, the majority of our requests would fall into the physical needs category. 
I'm not saying that because I can read your minds. I'm saying that from years of experience. I've led probably 150 year plus prayer meetings here at Southside since I've been here, plus just numerous other times here and in years past with other churches and other groups of Christians in various places, just leading prayer times. Some of those were more formal prayer times, some uh, just informal, let's, let's all get together and pray for a few minutes. And probably thinking back through those times when people have an opportunity to say things that they, they need prayer for, probably 80 to 90% of those prayer requests are, would fall into the physical needs category. And specifically, probably 80 to 90% would fall into the category of people who are physically sick. And if we're honest, our prayer for them is that they would get better, that they would be physically healed. Now, let me go ahead and say, there's nothing wrong with praying for physical needs. We should absolutely pray for physical needs. God wants us to do that. And there's nothing wrong with praying for somebody to be healed. My point isn't whether one's right or one's wrong. My point is the percentage, the percentage. A genuine disciple maker, a genuine disciple maker is characterized by missional praying, which means engaging in prayer that advances the mission of God. And the mission of God has way more to do with spiritual blessing than it does with physical blessing in our lives. It has way more to do with spiritual strengthening than physical strengthening. In fact, the mission of God is a call to suffer physically for the advancement of the gospel. This means that in some cases, in some cases, praying for physical healing or some other sort of physical blessing may actually be anti-mission of God. Against the mission of God, if in that situation, God intends to use someone's physical suffering to both strengthen that individual Christian's faith in the Lord and to draw other people to faith in the Lord as they watch how that person continues to trust in the Lord, even in the midst of physical suffering. My point is simply this. If we're going to be genuine disciple makers, our prayers need to be far more focused on spiritual needs than physical needs. And case in point is our passage today in First Thessalonians. Here in this passage, we learn this. We must pour ourselves into praying for the spiritual help of disciples because only God has the power to prepare disciples for the king's return. That's kind of a mouthful, but I think that's a good summary of these verses that we're going to look at today. We must pour ourselves into praying for the spiritual help of disciples because only God has the power to prepare disciples for the king's return. Now, we've been walking through Paul's account of his relationship with the Thessalonian believers. And we've seen an amazing picture of what it means to be a genuine disciple maker. I underestimated how much I was going to learn in this section of first Thessalonians. I'm just being honest with you. I, I, I under, I've underestimated how much I would learn and be challenged by this section um, here, chapter two and chapter three of first Thessalonians. We've learned that genuine disciple makers long for personal interaction with disciples, that they strengthen disciples to stand firm in the face of persecution, and they rejoice at the faithfulness of disciples. Um, today, we're going to look at the prayer life 
of a genuine disciple maker. Now, our passage today brings us to the end of, of, of the first of two main sections in First Thessalonians. The first section goes chapter 1 through chapter 3, and the second section, chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 1 through chapter 3 it deals a lot with his relationship with the Thessalonians. Chapter 4 and chapter 5, uh, which we're get, fixing to get into, he, uh, he, he gives more instructions and teachings to the church. We've been creating a list of descriptions of genuine disciple makers over the past few weeks, and I want to add four final descriptions to that list today, and all of them have to do with prayer. The first three that we're going to look at today give insight into what we should pray for, and then the fourth, insight, the fourth um, description gives insight into, into why we should pray for those things, kind of what's the motivation behind this missional type of praying. So let's dive in. First description I want to share with you is this. Genuine uh, disciple makers pray for opportunities to disciple the disciples. Disciple makers pray for opportunities to disciple the disciples. Verse 11 here in our passage says this. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. May he direct our way to you. Before we examine the request, which actually comes at the very end, that phrase, direct our way to you. Before we look at that, I just want, we can't, study this first without noticing an extremely important doctrine of Christianity that we see not even taught, just assumed at the beginning of verse 11. Notice who he prays to. He prays to our God and Father himself, and he prays to our Lord Jesus, and he's praying to both at the same time. Remember, Paul was a born and raised devout Jew, which means that for his whole life growing up, the most important verse of Scripture in his life would have been Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I want to emphasize that last phrase there. The Lord is one. He is one. And so that's like, that's the, Paul's, the, the key verse from Paul's life growing up as a devout Jew. And yet here we have Paul praying to both God the Father and Jesus whom he calls Lord. And that reveals a very important point of Christianity. And that is the belief that Jesus is fully divine and completely equal to God the Father. That this, when he talks about Jesus, he's talking about the flesh and blood Jesus that walked this earth. And he is equating him to God. Later in church history, the doctrine of the divinity of Jesus would be hashed out in monumental church councils. But this doctrine did not begin at those church councils. This letter to the Thessalonians, it very well could be one of the first letters of the New Testament that was ever written. And we already have Paul in one of probably the very first letter that was written, just assuming that Christians would believe that Jesus and God are the same, that Jesus is fully God, that he as the son and God as the father are completely equal. Paul's matter-of-fact statement here equating Jesus to God shows us that the divinity of Christ was a settled belief among the apostles and early Christians from the beginning of the church, and it's got to be a settled belief for us today. There are people who claim to be Christians in our world today who don't believe that Jesus is fully God. You cannot be a Christian and not believe that Jesus is fully God. So I just want to emphasize that before we move on to the request part of this verse. Notice that phrase, direct our way to you. 
direct our way to you. Once again, we see Paul's deep desire to be with the disciples in Thessalonica so that he can help them continue growing in their faith. He wants an opportunity to disciple the disciples. That's one of the things he prays for. I wonder when, the, when was the last time I prayed for an opportunity to disciple the disciples? When was the last time I prayed for that opportunity? If I'm honest, perhaps it's been a while. To disciple someone in a Christian context means to help that person become a more faithful follower of Jesus. So when was the last time I was going to have an interaction with a brother or sister in Christ and I asked God, give me a chance to help this brother or this sister in Christ become a more faithful follower of you. We've seen this characteristic of genuine disciple making pop up over and over in this section of 1 Thessalonians. Just think about it. Chapter 2, verse 17. He lamented leaving them so quickly. And then he said, we endeavor the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Chapter two, verse 18. He said, we wanted to come to you. Chapter three, verse two. He sends Timothy to them to disciple them. Chapter three, verse six. He said, we long to see you. Chapter three, verse 10. He said, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face so that we can supply what is lacking in your faith, which is another way of saying to disciple you. Now in verse 11, he's asking God, he's praying to God, God, direct our way to the Thessalonians. Paul desperately wants an opportunity to disciple the disciples. He wants to help them grow spiritually, but he knows that he can't do it alone. He knows that he needs God's help. We make a request to God. It's a declaration that we are in need of God's help. If we could do it on our own, there would be no reason to go to God in prayer. The word direct here, where it says he may direct um, our, our way to you. That word direct, it, it means to remove obstacles out of the path. Or you could, it, you could translate it to, to make straight the way. To make straight the way. Paul knew that making disciples was an act of spiritual warfare. We've, we've already seen back in chapter 2, verse 18, where he said that Satan was hindering them from, him from coming to the Thessalonians to disciple him. It's an act of spiritual warfare. And so Paul is going to engage in spiritual warfare by really what he's doing is radioing in to his commander in chief. This is war. Making disciples is war. We have an enemy. So I've got to call in to my commander in chief. I've got to call into our God and Father and the Lord Jesus for help. It's kind of like he's saying this, Father God, Lord Jesus, the enemy has riddled the path of fulfilling your mission with obstacles. Please get those obstacles out of the way. Make straight the path of discipleship. Direct our way to those that we need to disciple. There's a prayer that pleases God. You want to pray something that pleases God. There you go. You've got an example right there. God, give us an opportunity to disciple other believers. We learn something important here about prayer, and that's this, that a healthy prayer life protects us from trying to obey God without God. A healthy prayer life helps protect us from trying to obey God without God. Do you know that we, we could, we could um, know what God wants us to do and even want to do what God wants us to do and even take steps of obedience in trying to do what God wants us to do, but we could forget about God in the whole process and think that we could do it ourselves. And here we see Paul wanting to do what God wants him to do, but he doesn't leave God out of the process. He calls on God for help. It's a declaration of dependence upon God, 
in order to find the help that we need to carry out the mission to which he has called us. I love Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. Some of you probably have this verse memorized. It says, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. I think we need to remember that even when it comes to obeying God. Sometimes we think about that verse in a negative sense. Well, I might try to go this way, but the Lord wants to establish my steps this way. But even if God wants me to go this way and I'm willing to go that way, I still need to remember it's God who's the one who's helping me take those steps of obedience. And so I've got to constantly be in prayer asking him for help. So disciple makers pray for opportunities to disciple the disciples. Number two, disciple makers pray for growing love among disciples. Disciple makers pray for growing love among disciples. We see this in verse 12. But before we examine verse 12, think back to verse 10 for just a minute. You can look back there in your Bible. Paul said it back in verse 10 that although the Thessalonians were proving themselves faithful in the face of persecution, there is still room for improvement. Remember, we looked at that last week. Even though they were doing well in their walk with the Lord, there was still room for improvement. There were still areas of their faith that were lacking One of those areas was their love for one another and for others. Now, it's interesting because later in the letter, Paul is going to actually commend them for their love. He's going to say, you're doing a great job. But he's going to turn right around and say, you need to do it more and more and more. You're loving well, but there's still room for improvement in the way that you love others. And he's going to give them some instructions about that later in chapter 4. Here, though, he Praise that they would love others in an ever-increasing manner. He says in verse 12, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. I want you to notice uh, four things. I'm going to go through these pretty quickly, okay? Four things um, in this verse that we learn about this love that we're to have. We're going to look at the source of love, the amount of love, the recipients of love, and the example of love. First, I want you to notice the source of love. The source of love. Paul asked the Lord to make them love. Why? Because the love we are to show others as Christians is only a love that can come from God. It's not a love that we just are born understanding and knowing how to love people that way. We're not. We need God to put that love in us. Why? Because this love is an, an imit, to be an imitation of the sacrificial love of Jesus for sinners. That's the hardest kind of love, to die for your enemies. And that's the kind of love that we're to have for others. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The the fact is that there's nothing in us that can love others the way that God has loved us unless God puts that kind of love inside of us and helps us live it out in our lives. God is the means. He is the source by which we can love like we are supposed to love. We've got to have his saving grace to rescue us from our inability to love and to give us new hearts that can love as he has loved us. So God is the source of the love we're to show others. But then second, I want you to notice the amount of love. How much love, right? How how much are we supposed to love others? Paul asked the Lord to make them increase and abound in love. To increase and abound in love. You think he's trying to make a point here? I think he is. 
Two times in this letter, Paul has celebrated the love they are showing. In chapter 1, verse 3, he thanks God for their labor of love. And then in chapter 3, verse 6, he rejoices at the, quote, good news of your faith and love. But Paul is not satisfied with the amount of love they're showing, and neither should the Thessalonians be satisfied with the amount of love that they are showing. Think in your mind just for a second. Think about somebody that you would say, if there is one person, I don't mean other than Jesus, okay, other than Jesus. If there's one person that I know, uh, maybe, I, maybe they're, they're in my life right now, or somebody that maybe has gone on to be with the Lord, or just think of somebody that you've known at some point, and you go, if there was anybody that ever just epitomized the love of Jesus, it's that person. Think, think about who, who that person is in your mind. I'm sure you can think of somebody that you go, golly, I wish I could love others like that person loves others. As good as that person is at loving others, there's still room for improvement. They're still not perfect in love. The person that, that you know of that loves better than anybody else, aside from Jesus, there's still room for improvement. And so Paul says they need to increase and abound in love. Another way you can say that second word to abound is to overflow in love for others. Friends, a follower of Jesus can never, ever love too much. A follower of Jesus can never, ever love too much. Someone who has been rescued from the pit of hell by the blood uh, flowing from the love of Jesus will never be finished loving other people. The person who has experienced the limitless love of Jesus will never reach the limit of how much love they are to show to someone else. We never step back and go, well, if I'm done loving that person, I've loved them enough. That, 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 that thought should never enter our minds. Those words should never come out of our mouths. The love that Jesus has shown us is limitless, and therefore the love that we show others is to be limitless as well. Third, I want you to notice the recipients of love. You go, all right, I, I can do that, but let me pick. <laughs> let me pick who I want to show limitless love to. You know who the recipients are? Everyone. Who are we to love like that? Everyone. Paul says, love increasing and abounding for one another. That's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the one another. That's what it means, our, 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 our family and the Lord. And for all. Let's start with that one another. This is where the love we show others has to begin. If we can't love one another in the body of Christ, people who've been united eternally by the blood of Jesus, if we can't love one another, well, we'll never love the world that is enemies of the cross. We'll never love them well if we can't love one another. Just let me breeze through three verses from 1 John. I'm going to read them really fast. First uh, John chapter three, verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he's commanded us. And this given to chapter four, verse 21 of first John, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And in between those three verses, I skipped a bunch of other verses that say the exact same thing, that we must be loving one another well in the body of Christ, increasing and abounding in our love for one another. So if you want to pray for something that's worthwhile, for a brother or sister in Christ, you could pray that, that that fellow believer would increase and abound in their love for their fellow disciples, for their church family, 
That would be a great prayer for me to pray for you and for you to pray for me. That I would increase and abound in my love for my church family. Because there's always room for improvement there. But our love doesn't stop with fellow believers. The recipients of our love is expanded to include everyone. Paul says, for one another and for all. You know what the word all means? It means all. (laughs) It means all. No exceptions. We're to love all. Jesus was talking with a Jewish lawyer one day about love. The lawyer wanted to make himself look good by proving to be perfect in his love for others. But Jesus, he wasn't, he wasn't going to accept that. He knew that man wasn't perfect. He wanted to expose that, uh, that imperfection. And so he exposed the man's short-sighted view of who he was to love. And Jesus told him a story that you're very familiar with. He told a story about a Jew who was traveling uh, down a road and he was mugged. He was jumped by some robbers and they beat him up and they took all of his stuff and they left him for dead. Two devoted Jewish men, this was a Jew who was beat up, two devoted Jewish men, they came by and they went out of their way to not help the man. Then a Samaritan came by and he really went out of his way to help this Jewish man. To understand the strength of the story, you've got to understand there was deep hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. Deep hatred. So one of Jesus' points here was that true love crosses even the boundary of enemy lines to show tangible care and concern. Both friends and foes are to be the recipients of our love. But let's just be honest. That's much easier said than done, right? It's not always easy. And so the Thessalonians, they're to love even those who are persecuting them. We've talked about the persecution that the Thessalonians are facing. They're to love. Those persecutors are included in the everyone, in the all that they are to love. So they're going to need God's help. And so Paul prays for that spiritual need, that God would help them increase and abound in love, even for their enemies. But then fourth, I want you to notice the example of love. Now, this is interesting because we might expect Paul to say, you should love others like Jesus loves you, which would be a true statement. But he doesn't. He says, you should love others like we love you, like we love you. Verse 12, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So Paul and Silvanus and Timothy weren't just praying that the disciples in Thessalonica would love well. They were setting an example of ever-increasing love for everyone through their own lives. And so what do we learn from that? Well, we need to make sure that we don't just pray for others to follow Jesus well. We need to be modeling a lifestyle of following Jesus well, that lifestyle that we're asking God to bring about in the life of other disciples. I don't don't just want to pray that you would love well. I need to be modeling that in my life. So as I follow Jesus, you follow me, you're following Jesus. And as you follow Jesus and I can follow you, then I'm following Jesus. You see how that works? So what do we have here? Verse 12, we have this growing love. A love that's continually increasing and abounding. That's one of the requests that Paul brings before God on behalf of disciples. And brothers and sisters, just... Is there is there ever any room for improvement in your life in the way that you love? Yes, there is. 
And so you can assume that's the same, the same is true for you, for, for, for me and for other disciples. If you know there's room for improvement in your life and the way that you love others, you can assume the same is true for me. And so you can pray that for me and I can pray that for you. Whatever, it is, uh, whatever situation a disciple is going through, you can always honor God by asking him to help that brother or sister increase and abound in love as he or she walks through that circumstance. So disciple makers pray for opportunities to disciple disciples. Opportunities uh, pray for growing love among disciples. And third, disciple makers pray for unwavering holiness to characterize disciples. Disciple makers pray for unwavering wavering holiness to characterize disciples. Verse 13 says, so that, so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. This prayer request is connected to the previous prayer request in that a holy life will be a life of love. A holy life will be a life of love. He wants them to increase in love so that, so that they would be found blameless in holiness. As one writer said, an unloving man cannot be a holy man. An unloving man cannot be a holy man. And so Paul prays for growing love and unwavering holiness. That word established that you see there, that was used by Paul back in chapter 3, verse 2, when he sent Timothy to establish and exhort them in the faith. And so there, Timothy was the one doing the establishing. But again, Paul knows that humans can't do that by themselves. We can't do that by ourselves. We need God. So now he's asking God to do the establishing or the strengthening. Paul understands that while God uses people to help disciples grow, ultimately God is the only one who can produce the strength necessary for us to live lives that are called blameless in holiness. Paul understands that, so we ask God to do it. Now, holiness refers to, to God's standard of living, which is perfection. And the word blameless really oftentimes refers to how we live before others or our reputation before others. And so here's what Paul is asking here in verse uh, in, in verse uh, 12. Um, he's asking God to uh, excuse me, verse 13. He's asking God to work in their lives in such a way that they live according to God's standards before the watching world. Yet realizing that God ultimately is the one who is watching and the one to whom disciples must give an account. So do you want to pray a request, make a request for disciples that really matters? I mean, pray for disciples to have the strength to live holy lives, to do the right thing in the eyes of God as they interact with the world around them. Pray that they will be blameless in holiness. That's a general prayer. If you know of a specific sin that a brother or sister in Christ struggles with, you can take that general prayer for holiness and pray specifically for that brother or sister in Christ in regards to that particular sin area that he or she struggles with. Or if you know that a person's current situation is providing Satan with a prime opportunity to tempt a disciple with a particular sin, then you could pray specifically that that individual would resist the temptation to fall into that sin while he or she's walking through that trial. Let me give you a few examples. Instead of just asking God to help your Christian friend get a good report from the doctor, I'm not saying don't ask that, but instead of just asking for that, you could also ask God to help him not be anxious, but to trust in the Lord while he waits for the results, and then to rejoice in the Lord 
no matter what the results are. Instead of just asking God to heal your Christian friend who has an ongoing illness, you could ask God to protect your friend from the temptation to doubt God's goodness and love and care in her life while she faces this ongoing illness. Instead of just asking God to keep your daughter safe as she heads off for college or heads off to kindergarten or either, either way, instead of just asking God, keep her safe, God, you could ask God also to help your child stand firm in her faith and obey God's call on her life, even if God's call means doing something hard for the cause of Christ. Instead of just asking God to help, help your child pass the test at school today, you could ask God to help your child resist the temptation to cheat, even if it means getting a lower grade. And instead of just asking God to help your Christian friend find a better job, you could ask God to help your friend shine the light of Jesus by having a thankful attitude and by sharing the gospel with coworkers until God provides a better job, if God decides to do that. You see how you can take real life, everyday physical situations and needs and engage in missional praying for disciples by looking at the situation from God's standpoint as it relates to his mission and how he wants that individual disciple of Jesus to live for him. But then we get this question, why? Why engage in missional praying? Why would we focus on spiritual needs rather than physical needs when it comes to the requests that we make to God on behalf of fellow, fellow disciples? I mean, it's so much easier just to see the physical needs around us and just pray for the, spirit, for the physical needs. Why would we want to kind of make sure that we're not, not neglecting the, the spiritual needs side of it? Earlier I said I want to share with you four descriptions of genuine disciple makers, and the first three would be the actual request, and the fourth would be the, the motivation. And so let's, let's look at this fourth and final description of a genuine disciple maker. Why focus our prayers on these spiritual needs? Because that's what's going to matter when the king returns. Number four, disciple makers pray for spiritual health because that is what will matter when the king comes for his disciples. Why focus on spiritual needs? Because that's what's going to matter when the king comes back to get his disciples. Paul writes at the end of verse 13. Uh, he says, the first part, so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father. And in the end, that last phrase is important, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. What's a driving motivation for Christians to live holy lives? The fact that we're going to stand before Jesus one day. He's coming back and we'll give an account. The only thing that's going to matter when we stand before a holy God is whether or not we have lived holy lives. I heard a description this past week. I was reading and someone gave this description of heaven. I love it. I love this description of heaven. She described it this way. The holy habitation of holy inhabitants. The holy habitation of holy inhabitants. I love that description for a lot of reasons. I don't have time to get into right now, but let me just give you one reason why I like that description. It helps get our minds on things that really matter. Living holy lives, living in love for others, investing our lives in the mission of making disciples, which includes desiring opportunities to disciple the disciples. And if the second coming of Jesus is a motivation for us to live for things that will matter on that day, then I believe it will also and should also serve as a motivation for us to pray 
about things that will matter on that day. So here's what I want, here's what I want you to see, church family. We, we get so caught up in the physical reality of our lives that we often forget about the spiritual reality. I'm not discounting at all the physical reality. In no way, because God has created the physical. It is important. It does matter. But what we see around us right now is temporary. Our bodies as we know them now are temporary. This world is passing away. There will be another physical world one day, a new heavens and a new earth. It will be a physical reality as much as it will be a spiritual reality. But what we see right now, what is physical right now, is passing away second by second. And what will matter in the end for disciples is whether or not we lived in this physical world, in our physical bodies, for the glory of King Jesus. Let me just put it bluntly. It's not going to make, and I say this with deep love for the person who is going through this trial, but it's not going to make that much difference when your Christian friend stands before Jesus one day as to whether she was healed from her cancer when she was 50 and lived to be 70 or whether she died from her cancer when she was 50. I'm not saying that that's not a serious issue. I'm not saying that we wouldn't ask God and beg God to spare her life and give us a few more years or many more years on this earth with her. But think about standing before Jesus one day. What will matter is whether or not she lived in love and lived in holiness with the time that God gave her, regardless of how much time she had. You see the point. When she stands before the Lord, whether or not she lived a holy life will matter more than how long she lived. And if that's the case, which I think it will be, then don't you think that an even better prayer than just a prayer for physical healing would be a prayer for her to grow in love and to live in holiness in the midst of that sickness so that whether God heals her or not, she will be more prepared and he will be more pleased with her when she stands before him one day. And you can go back through all the other examples that I gave a moment ago and so many more. Oh, how I long for the day when 80 to 90% of our prayer requests fall into the spiritual needs category so that our praying is actually an engagement in the mission of God. Just think about it. In, in the context here, Paul is writing and to and praying for people who are undergoing Physical difficulty. They're undergoing persecution. They're being rejected. Physically rejected. Perhaps even physically abused by people in their society. And yet never in this letter does he pray that God would protect them physically from physical harm. He's so caught up in the mission of God that they would live holy lives before God. All he can think about in his prayer life is that they would live holy and loving lives before God. And so his prayers are saturated with spiritual needs for them. Let me give you two final questions that might help us. And these are questions that I want to ask and and get better at asking in in my prayer life. I think these questions will help filter out perhaps some things that, um, that we're spending too much time praying for and we need to spend less time praying for, or perhaps they would filter out even things that we just really don't even need to pray about to begin with. Question number one, will this prayer matter when Jesus returns? 
Just think about that. When you're going to spend some time in prayer and you're praying for another uh, a brother or sister in Christ, ask, ask, is this is what I'm praying is my request to the Lord? Is it going to matter when Jesus returns? I mean, is it going to matter whether he passes that test when he stands before Jesus one day? Maybe, but maybe not. I mean, is it going to matter if she gets into that school or gets that job that she wants? When Jesus returns? Is it going to matter if I get that, get that better house or that, that better car when Jesus returns? Probably not. And yet, so much, so much of the time, those are the things that fill our prayer life. And then question number two. If God answers this prayer for my brother or sister in Christ, will he or she be more prepared for the coming of Jesus? So, so go back to that example. I wanted to pick an extreme example because that's a serious thing in somebody's life. I mean, are they going to die or not? They have this sickness and it could kill them. All right, and so our hearts break for that person. And by all means, we would ask God, God, if it's your will, we love this person and we want to continue living life with this person. And so if it's your will, we would love for you to heal that person. But is God physically healing that person going to help that person be more prepared to stand before Jesus one day? If they're already a follower of Jesus, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Church, Jesus is coming back one day and the anticipation of his return radically impacts our lives, including how we pray. We must live in light of the return of Christ and we must pray in light of the return of Christ. Now, This, this passage is written for believers in the sense that if you, if you say, I want to I I stand before God as holy, I want him to accept me one day when Jesus comes back, so I guess I need to make sure I, I live a holy life and I, I need to make sure I pray for the right things or God's not going to love me. Oh, you missed the point, okay? I mean, this, is, this is for people who are already followers of Christ. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, then that's what you need to do. You don't need to walk out going, well, I need to I need to make sure I say the right prayers so that I can go to heaven when I die. No, 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 no. That's not the point. People who are already on their way to heaven need to be praying (laughs) for spiritual things and putting this into practice. If you're not already on your way to heaven because you haven't already trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, then that's the first thing that you need to do. You need to trust that Jesus died on the cross to make you holy. It's not our obedience that will allow us to stand before him one day and be accepted into his presence. It's the blood of Jesus shed on our behalf, covering our sin, that will allow us to stand before him one day as holy and be accepted into his presence. But once we have trusted in Jesus Christ, then we want to make sure we are living and praying in a way that brings him honor and glory. I made this statement when we began about four weeks ago, looking at what it means to be a genuine disciple maker. And I want to end with this statement. Because it's interesting that Paul began this section back in chapter 2, verse 17, 18, and then specifically 19 with talking about Jesus coming back one day. And now he's ending the section on genuine disciple making, talking about Jesus coming back one day. So here's just what I, what God has taught me. And I just want to end with this um, today. What he's taught me in this larger passage on genuine disciple making is this, whether or not we have faithfully followed Jesus by making faithful followers of Jesus will be all that matters on the day our King returns. 
And so we should pour ourselves into making disciples every day until that day that he does return. But brothers and sisters, we don't have the power to do it in and of ourselves. And so we've got to engage in missional prayer because that's what genuine disciple makers do. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Um, I want you to take just a moment and I want you to reflect on this passage of Scripture. And uh, I just want you to ask the Lord, God, what, how do you, what do you want to teach me in this passage? Maybe you want to confess um, some, some praying that can't be, wouldn't be categorized as missional praying. Maybe right now there's a spiritual need that you know of someone, maybe in this room or another brother or sister in Christ, and right now you want to take a minute and you want to pray for that spiritual need for that person. You lift that request up to the Lord. And you ask God to help you apply this passage to your life. I'm going to give you just a moment just to talk to the Lord. Spend a little bit of time reflecting on this passage.